1: Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 419th live edition of Talk in Tuesday, and brought to you today in part by ICD University. And joining me this morning as my co-host is the very, very, very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, as you know from this broadcast, is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, M.D., Incorporated. (laughs) And good morning, Erica.
2: Good morning, Chuck, and good
1: morning, everyone. This morning we're getting a lesson about Teamwork. Now, as a former ED doc, you're very familiar with teamwork, I'm sure.
2: I certainly am. Patient care is all
1: about teamwork. That's right. This morning, Dr. David Jury, a critical care physician at the famed Cleveland Clinic, he's going to discuss teamwork at an ICU unit, and we're going to walk in his shoes as he relates to taking care of COVID patients got going to be very interesting.
2: I'm sure it will be. It'll bring me back to my clinical days. And speaking of teamwork, Lori Johnson, who's on our team here at Talk 10 Tuesdays, will have the Talk 10 Tuesday coding report.
1: And later on the broadcast, another member of our team, Gloria Ann Bryant, has a Tuesday focus.
2: Yes, Gloria Ann will be reporting on two ICD-10-CM codes relating to COVID-19 that seem to be generating an unusual amount of attention.
1: And you have a talk back seven this morning. What are you going to be talking about?
2: Uh, Well, I'm going to be talking about a common CDI topic, acute blood loss anemia. Uh,
1: Okay. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Tim Powell, who is at the
0: Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University Bookstore reminding you that Dr. Erica Remer's ICD-10 flowcharts provide quick guidance to the correct diagnosis codes for potential COVID-19 cases. Use the ICD-10 Monitor Resources tab at the top of the web room for more information.
3: Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And last week, my wife cut her finger quite badly. Our doctor performed a telemedicine visit. The doctor decided to see the wound using FaceTime, And my wife used FaceTime to show her the cut. Sitting in my office later, I wondered about HIPAA and my wife's visit. You can call me a romantic. You can only comply with HIPAA if you have a signed business associate's agreement. And Apple is considered to be a business associate. But unfortunately, Apple has decided that they are not willing to sign a BAA. And therefore, Apple services, including FaceTime, are not HIPAA compliant. But wait, CMS has issued a special notice during the season of COVID that allows healthcare providers that they may use applications that allow video chats, including Apple, uh, Apple FaceTime, Facebook Messenger, Google Hangouts, Zoom, uh, to provide telehealth tele- without risk that the OCR might seek to impose penalties. My question is, how will we ever put the genie back in the bottle? Will providers suddenly tell patients they can come into the office for service they have received for telehealth? Can Medicare really roll back? Can Medicare really roll back the uh, the allowance of letting providers work through Medicare using uh, FaceTime and other non HIPAA compliant applications? So HIPAA has been around since 1996. This was a time when the internet was young, according to ourworldindata.org. In the year 2000, there were 413 million people were on the World Wide Web. Also, according to their statistics, 3.4 billion were connected by 2016. So my last thought concerns race, class, and health care. Will the poor, particularly minorities, that can't afford cell phones with high-speed access be left out of the telehealth market moving forward? Will rural patients be left out of the telehealth revolution? Let's hope not. And with that, back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's June 16th, and you're listening to the 419th Live Edition of Talked in Tuesday. Stand by.
0: With nationally recognized consultants and state-of-the-art technology, Panacea Healthcare provides auditing services for inpatient, outpatient, physician, pharmacy, revenue integrity, and documentation. Panacea also provides auditing services for specialties, including interventional radiology, E&M coding, surgery, and more, to help you meet your auditing and compliance goals. From finding lost revenue to capturing all charges and ensuring compliance and data integrity, you'll be confident that Panacea is focusing on the important risks and opportunities. Here's more good news for your organization. Panacea can electronically audit 100% of your claims or encounters within minutes, revealing those claims with the highest probability for a coding, compliance, data integrity, revenue risk, or opportunity. And for a nominal fee, Panacea will process your claims and provide a diagnostic review. That's the Panacea difference. To learn more, call 866-926-5933. That number again, 866-926-5933. Or click the button on the screen to request information.
1: Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Lori Johnson. And good morning, Lori.
4: Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. Today, I would like to continue the discussion on the new new Fiscal Year 21 ICD-10 PCS codes with a focus on the new tests and substances that appear in the PCS tables. Brexanolone is a substance that treats postpartum depression. It is administered as a continuous infusion over 60 hours in a healthcare facility. Neurinatide is a neuroprotectant and used to treat acute ischemic strokes. This agent helps to repair the damaging effects of the ischemic stroke. Ner- Durvalumab, also known as Imfinzi, is used to treat extensive stage cell lung cancer. This drug is used in combination with chemotherapy. The drug is classified as a monoclonal antibody. Lefamulin, anti-infective, which is also known as Zenlita, is used to treat community-acquired bacterial pneumonia. It is available in oral and intravenous forms. Mineral-based topical hemostatic agent. This is a powder that is used in gastrointestinal tract um, via an endoscope. The powder is sprayed on the bleeding site. Elatocagenin. Egiparivac is an orphan drug that treats aromatic L amino acid decarboxylase deficiency, it is also known as Abstaza. This drug is given intracerebrally and is considered gene therapy. Brexucabtagene autolucel, is a type of chimeric antigen receptor T cell immunotherapy, which involves the harvesting of T cells from the patient's blood. The T-cells are changed so that they will bind with a certain protein of the cancer cells. Lysocaptogene, mara Lusol, is another type of CAR T-cell immunotherapy. This is a drug that's given via infusion. It is used to treat relapsed, refractory, large B-cell lymphoma. It is also known as Lysocel. Infection, positive blood culture, fluorescence, hybridization, for organism identification, concentration, and susceptibility is a test that can identify gram-positive, gram-negative, and yeast organisms using FISH technique to target RNA sequences. This test requires two minutes of actual lab time. Infection, lower respiratory fluid, nucleic acid-based detection is a test that identifies bacterial and viral targets from sputum or bronchial alveolar lavage samples. The test determines if there is colonization or pathogens. These substances and tests are found in the addendum tables for fiscal year 21 ICD-10 PCS. These tables can be found on the CMS website by selecting the Medicare tab, then the ICD-10 entry on the left. On the left side of the screen select the entry for Fiscal Year 21 ICD-10 PCS. It is important to use this time to investigate if your organization utilizes these substances or tests. The next step is to determine where the documentation can be found. Fiscal Year 21 ICD-10 CM codes should be released in the next couple of weeks. With that, back to you, Erica. Erica.
2: Lori, you're a better person than I to have attempted to pronounce all of those medications. Go put some ice on your tongue. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions LLC.
1: This morning we focus on two ICD 10 CM codes. Now these codes are related to COVID 19 and they're generating an unusual amount of attention on our website at ICD 10 Monitor. So here now with our Tuesday focus is Gloria Ann Bryan, and good morning, Gloria
5: Good morning, and thank you, Chuck, and thank you, Dr. Reamer. I appreciate the opportunity to join the team today. It's always a good practice to look at data. Everybody agrees with that. This is especially true regarding clinical data. So the folks at ICD-10 Monitor noticed a fair amount of ICD-10 code searches for two particular code conditions. And the first condition search was, understandably, COVID-19. And the second was for major depression. Well, let's look a little closer at these two ICD-10-CM codes. COVID-19, code U07.1, and the code F32.9 for major depression disorder unspecified. As we know, ICD-10 U07.1 for COVID-19 continues to be a hot topic, and not only in our industry, but across the United States and the world. We are all very aware that as of April 1st, 2020, the new code was actually launched and given to us to initiate and capture and report 2019 novel coronavirus, the U07.1. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services released a MedLearn Matters on April 1st, which also announced the new code. For HIM, Health Information Management, and CDI, Clinical Documentation Improvement Professionals, they should read over and follow, and then read over again, the guidelines and rules. AHIMA and AHA have put together a frequently asked question document on their each of their websites for COVID-19. And from a coding perspective in the tabular, you have instructions that need to be followed. U07.1 tabular tells us to use an additional code to identify the pneumonia or other manifestation. Also in the tabular for U07.1, we have the excludes one instruction, and we need to follow that as well in our coding and our data collection. The subject of major depression has also been a frequent search, as I mentioned, and inquiries on the website at ICD-10 Monitor. If we take the time to think about our society today, right now, today, the unemployment rate, shelter in place, the COVID-19, wearing masks, limited interaction with others, the violence and civil unrest, that certainly can bring about depression. Looking at ICD-10-CM tabular, you can see a variety under F32, that category, a variety of code choices. Now, there is a F32.0, for example, for major depression, single episode, mild, and so on until we get down to the F32.9, major depression, single episode, unspecified. And under that F32.9, there are some additional terms that are inclusive in F32.9, meaning that depression, not otherwise specified, depressive disorder, not otherwise specified, major depression, not otherwise specified, are also additional terms for F32.9. With the current public health emergency, yes, we are seeing searches and inquiries for COVID-19 and also more for depression and that is across our patient population. It's a good idea to run a frequency report on these two codes from January of this year to the end of May, and and if we can wait till the end of June, I'd run it then as well, and compare that to July to the end of December 2019 timeframe, and just see the comparison as far as frequencies. Staying on top of topics, information, guidelines, is always needed to achieve clinical data accuracy and maintain compliance. So please stay safe, keep informed, take care of yourself, and also please, please let's be kind to one another. Back to you, Erica.
2: Thanks, Gloria. And Yeah, for depression, you want to make sure that you're documenting whether it's a single or a recurrent, the severity of the episode, the most recent or the current, and then whether or not they're in remission, partial or complete. That was Glorianne Bryant. Glorianne is a nationally recognized HIN authority. Chuck?
1: Thank you, Erica. And thank you again, Glorianne, very much. And you can read Glorianne's. Excellent reporting on this very important subject in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor News. Up next, our lead story on teamwork. Teamwork at an ICU unit in Cleveland Clinic. Dr. David Jury is scrubbing up for that report. You're listening to the 419th live edition of Talked in Tuesday. He's going to be with us in 60 seconds. Stand by.
0: As the long-term health consequences of COVID-19 become clearer, how will you correctly report sequelae resulting from the disease? What are the differences between ICD-10-CM coding for COVID-19 during and after the pandemic? How do exposure codes differ from screening codes? Using case examples to reinforce key concepts, Dr. Erica Remer will respond to these and other timely questions in a special one-hour webcast. One thing is certain. Coding mistakes will attract the attention of payers and auditors. Claim denials, possibly even takebacks, are sure to follow. At a time of financial distress for many healthcare organizations, it is absolutely essential to protect COVID nineteen patient revenues through accurate and complete ICD ten CM coding. Register now for Dr. Reimer's exclusive on-demand webcast. COVID nineteen ICD ten CM Coding, a deeper dive into questions and areas of confusion. It's available now online at shop.medlearn.com. Our lead story this morning
1: is about Teamwork. Teamwork treating COVID patients in the IC unit. Our special guest this morning, Dr. David Jury, is here now. He's going to describe a day in his life at the famed Cleveland Clinic. And good morning, Dr. Jury.
6: Good morning, Chuck. It's great to be with you. I'd like to engage your audience in a conversation about my thoughts and feelings about how I uh, take care of my patients in the ICU. It's uh, going to be uh, an emotional journey for us. Uh, For the logistics of it, I encourage everyone to read the article. My day begins with a call from the intensivist to to give me sign-out on my entire unit. COVID patients are particularly fragile and sensitive to small changes. Progress is slow and incremental, and very small adjustments in the ventilator are done more frequently than with other patients. I'm curious to hear what progress has been made on my patients from the day before. I want to hear some good news, so when I talk to my patients' loved ones over the phone, I can give them that good news. One of the hardest parts of taking care of COVID patients is the fact that everything is on lockdown, including the hospital. My patients are isolated from their families. They can't come to visit, can't hold their family's hand, can't offer the support of a a familiar voice. This is heart-wrenching for everyone. Hope is a powerful tool and having loved ones nearby to encourage them to, t- to stay strong and keep fighting fosters hope and resiliency for my patients. But when families aren't able to come see their members of their family uh, during such critical illness, that is particularly challenging for all of us. I do my best to explain what we're doing and why. We offer connection via technology through an iPad or cell phone, but it's a poor substitute. Today's kind of a mixed bag. Some are better, some are worse. I'll have to deliver both good and bad news today. As I'm driving in, I get a call from the emergency room. There's a sick elderly patient that's COVID positive and is demented and won't be able to make any decisions for themselves. The ED physician has assessed the patient and determined that they're sick enough to warrant placing a breathing tube and being put on a ventilator. Along with that, to conserve our protective equipment, we generally place a central line and an arterial line. Both are invasive and not particularly pleasant procedures, but are often needed to take care of these patients. I'm very conflicted. This patient's comorbidities are such that I fear they won't do very well. I think of what we're contemplating to fight this illness and the the discomfort it will cause in the setting of a likely poor outcome. The patient's family will have to make decisions on how to proceed. They'll ask me to predict what's going to happen. How long will the patient be there? Will they survive? I don't have good answers to any of these questions. We simply don't know. But I know there's a high likelihood of maybe not the best outcome. But if we don't do anything, she'll die today. I'm grateful for a palliative care consult that focuses on living with terminal disease and to make the process as comfortable as possible. My patients are all very sick. This is a new disease that challenges us to care providers in new ways. I'm happy to see the public has, for the most part, taken this seriously and practicing good social distancing and wearing masks when out in public. Flattening the curve is about lowering the number of sick people at any one time. This prevents the hospital from getting overwhelmed and exposes less people to the disease till we can develop a meaningful treatment, or better yet, a vaccine. COVID is still with us. And the best way to fight it is to be smart and practice effective social distancing and wearing masks. An ounce of prevention is truly worth a pound of cure. We'll get through this if everyone does what's asked of them. And with that, back to you, Erica.
2: And I would like to add to that, make sure you're wearing your mask correctly over your nose and your mouth. Thank you, David. That was Dr. David Jury. Dr. Jury is an anesthesiologist and critical care physician at the Cleveland Clinic.
1: Chuck? Thank you, Erica, and Dr. David Jury, thank you so very much for being on our program today. You can read Dr. Jury's excellent report on this very important topic in today's ICD-10 Monitor News. Now it's time for a very popular segment here at Talk 10 Tuesdays. It's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reimer. And Dr. Riemer, what are you going to be talking about today?
2: I'm working on a project which triggered this talkback, and I actually would like your feedback if you would. My vision is to design short educational questions which are administered daily to teach CDI and documentation in small, digestible aliquots to educate providers, CDI professionals, and coders in parallel. My goal is to make sure they all understand clinical documentation and what they want and need from each other. I would like to provide CME and CEUs for a reasonable price. Let me know what you think of the idea. I started with COVID-19, and then I'm letting the alphabet guide me. So last week, I made questions regarding acute blood loss anemia. I decided to share some factoids and thoughts with you. Acute blood loss anemia is our nickname for acute post-hemorrhagic anemia, the title of the ICD-10-CM code D62. We often refer to it with the acronym ABLA, A-B-L-A. Why is losing blood so impactful? Hemoglobin A is the protein in red blood cells responsible for transporting oxygen. It is a complicated molecule composed of four folded subunits, two alpha and two beta chains, each with an incorporated heme group composed of an organic ring-like compound called porphyrin, oriented around a central iron atom. The iron atoms reversibly bind to oxygen. The major functions of red blood cells are to deliver oxygen to the tissues and to extract carbon dioxide. The hematocrit is a proportion by volume of blood that consists of red blood cells. It is expressed as a percentage If the hematocrit is 40%, it means that when the blood is spun down, 40% of the volume is red blood cells and 60% is serum. There are varying normal ranges for hemoglobin hematocrit, factoring in gender, age, race, and health factors, such as being an athlete, living at high altitude, being a smoker, or having chronic disease. For men, Hemoglobin is usually somewhere between 13.5 and 17.5 grams per deciliter, and for women, 12.0 to 15.5 grams per deciliter. Hematocrit runs roughly three times the hemoglobin. Different mechanisms can result in anemia, including blood loss, hemolysis or cell breakdown, and decreased production. If your hemoglobin falls below the lower end of the range, you are considered... Anemic, uh, sorry, moderate anemia corresponds to a level of 7.0 to 9.9 grams per deciliter, whereas severe anemia is considered a level less than 7.0. The most common cause of acute anemia in the emergency department is blood loss. If you lose blood, you lose blood cells, and ultimately it impairs your ability to deliver oxygen to the tissues. Organs depend on oxygen to function properly, and massive hemorrhage is life-threatening. The treatment of blood loss is determined by the rapidity by which the anemia develops, the degree of blood loss, whether symptoms have arisen, and whether there are high-risk clinical circumstances rendering the patient more vulnerable to harm. There are no hard and fast rules as to what drop in hemoglobin or hematocrit must be to diagnose ABLA. When institutions ask me for help drafting internal guidelines, I suggest a drop of 2 grams of hemoglobin, and some literature also uses a percentage drop of hemoglobin, not hematocrit, of 15 to 20 percent. But you need to use your clinical judgment. Treatment may be blood transfusion, blood transfusion, but need not be. Iron supplementation or careful monitoring may be the extent of the treatment. It enters into the provider's calculus of care and increases risk. What isn't ABLA? If the provider thinks the drop in hematocrit is due to hemodilution, they should document that. That will explain their actions and ward off a query. Precipitous drop in hematocrit can indicate several situations. One, there is acute blood loss, but the patient never falls into anemic territory, so it's not anemia. Second, there is a drop in hematocrit, but it is not clearly from hemorrhage, and the cause is yet to be identified. Precipitous drop in hematocrit is also a CC. I'll bring you more tidbits from my project in the future. Until then, back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, uh, Erica, very much. That was an excellent report, and we appreciate it. We've asked our panelists to stick around for a couple of questions. I saw that one of the questions came up earlier on, and this is for uh, Lori Johnson. Lori, when do we expect to see the uh, final rule come out for the IPPS?
4: The final rule should be out by August 7, 2020. The rule is it is published by the first Friday in August each year.
1: Very good. Thanks. Erica, a couple of questions for you. Tell me about this project again and what kind of response you want from our listeners.
2: What I'm going to be doing is having um, short they're short questions, multiple choice, and then the um, provider or the fetus or the coder. And I, what happens is I'm trying to do it so they're each getting very similar question, but there may be additional information for one versus the other, depending on what their needs are to learn. Um, but that way, they all understand the same concepts, and so they're speaking the same language, and they're understanding if the coder comes and asks the doctor for something, they'll know why they're being asked for it. Um, and that's my that's my goal. And I wanted to know whether people thought that there would be interest in this, um, because it seems to me that the best way to do this would be for like institutions to purchase this sort of a pro, um, this sort of a product um, for everyone so that everyone was learning the same information at the same time. So I'd like to hear what people have to think about it. Hey, Chuck, I would like to actually ask um, Dr. Jury a question if he's still on. Um, Great. So I would like to know, do you anticipate and how would you be handling if you did get to the point where you needed to ration care? So you were saying how the um that the demented patient there were you know there was a calculus as to risks and benefits and so on. Um, do you anticipate that there will be problems with rationing care with the next wave?
6: You know this is the thing that we all uh, as as providers are very concerned about, and why I can't stress enough the importance of all of us out in our public lives doing good social distancing and wearing masks. But, you know, I think if we got to the point where there wasn't enough uh, ICU beds or ventilators or maybe even care providers to go around to take care of everyone, um, you know, we there would be some hard decisions that would have to be made. But I think the way that would work is, uh, you know, on an institutional level basis, every hospital would have to have a formal set of guidelines and to, to guide providers at the bedside in making those decisions. I really, truly hope it doesn't get to that point um, because I can't imagine as, as a physician being put in that kind of situation.
2: I completely agree with you and with everything that you've said, and it's been a delight having you on. Thank you so much. You've really contributed to our Talk 10 Tuesdays. Chuck, I think that that's all we have time for today, so I think that's a wrap. Back to you.
1: Thanks, Erica, very much. That is going to be a wrap for our 419th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and I want to thank our panelists today, Gloria and Bryant, Dr. David Jerry, whom you just heard, Lori Johnson, Tim Powell, and, of course, our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, you can listen to us anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's free. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for ICD-10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday. Thank you very much
0: for being with us. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.